This message by Ray Ortland Jr. titled, Gathering to Behold, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the first general session at our Worship God 2011 conference. Ray is lead pastor of Emanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and the president of Renewal Ministries. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Please follow as I read verses 1 through 18. And our text is verse 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day... When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And here's our text. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's Word. Now, what can we rightly expect of a worship gathering at any one of our churches, Sunday by Sunday? What is actually happening in our church services through the gospel? 
this past Sunday, this coming Sunday, and so forth. We sing the gospel, we pray the gospel, we read the gospel, we hear the gospel, we preach the gospel, but a biblically authentic worship gathering is more than what we do. Christ Himself is doing for us what only He can do. What therefore can we expect of Him? Now, naturally, we want to fulfill our own responsibilities in, an, in as excellent a manner as we possibly can. Uh, but it is so freeing to go beyond what is natural and to remember that supernaturally Christ Himself moves among us displaying His glory for our transformation. Now, I would like us to press into this now so that we think through what we're actually involved in week by week. The magnitude of it, the glory of it, the privilege of it, the miracle of it. So what should we pray for according to this verse? What should we reach for? What should we be open to and expect and plan around? What should we allow to displace our plans? As we give way to the Lord Himself, if He so leads. Well, Paul, in this verse, verse 18, goes a long way toward guiding us into these wonderful questions. So let's take it. I want to take the verse one phrase at a time, and then I want to move toward, funnel down to one conclusion that I want to press forward into our thinking tonight. And I'm going to be speaking as a preacher, of course, and there are many preachers here, but also many worship leaders, obviously, And uh, we share this together. And it is vital in every church that the preacher and the worship leader be of one heart and mind in these convictions. It's so important that there be no friction or tension between these two leaders so visible in every church. So with oneness of heart, we want to lead the people into the wonder, the miracle of true gospel ministry. So let's look at the first phrase in the verse. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Hmm. We all. We all stands in contrast with the one man, Moses, in the context, as you saw, he beheld the glory of, of the Lord with such intensity, his very face gleamed after these encounters with the Lord. But it was his experience alone. Now, the words we all mean, every Christian has become a Moses. Every Christian is given a view of the glory of the Lord. We behold and reflect his glory. So God has, in the New Covenant, God has democratized His very best gift and shared it with all His people. Every blood-bought one of His precious people. And this beholding of the Lord, enjoying the Lord, lifting Him up, being caught up in the glory of the Lord, that is a universal and unifying Christian experience in worship. That's what Paul means. Now, this freedom that we all enjoy, the freedom of verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That new covenant freedom stands again in contrast with the strict fault-finding of the old covenant. We were under constant scrutiny with every departure from the law, written down, noted down, recorded in every damning detail. And who can breathe in that kind of environment? 
That's not the culture that the gospel creates, according to the New Covenant. The freedom of verse 17 is a gospel culture. It's freedom in the largest sense. Freedom, the freedom of every sin forgiven. The freedom of no condemnation. The freedom of full acceptance on terms of grace. The freedom of not having to conceal our failings. Not having to appear to be better than we really are. Not having to keep up a front. Not having to try to be impressive. The freedom to confess. The freedom to be honest. The freedom to come to God as we are in repentance and to find our Father running toward us. With a kiss on our cheek. A ring for our finger, a robe. And we all share that freedom together. You have that freedom. That belongs to you. Jesus died to give that to you. And we all share it together to an equal degree as the Spirit applies and presses the gospel into our hearts as a felt experience of the glory of the Lord. So we all, now, next phrase, with unveiled face. This also stands, obviously, in contrast with Moses who veiled his face because he didn't want the people to see that the glory, the radiance, was fading away. But verse 12 says, we are very bold. Moses couldn't be bold in this sense. As long as the glory in his face was intense, he and everything he stood for was was impressive. But the glory faded. The old covenant never could change people at a deep and permanent level. And by that very weakness, God was, as it were, whispering to us all, I still have something much better from all my people. And now we have it through Christ in all our churches. God has begun a deep and eternal miracle in you and in me. In chapter 4, Paul describes it as God shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It describes God removing the fallacies that distort our perception of Him, our feelings about Him, our thoughts of Him, our intuitions about Him, so that He can be truly known in His grace and love, and so that we can be truly known in all our need. So God takes away any need for us to conceal our weakness, to conceal our fading glory, our fading intensity, and all of our incomprehension and all of our failings. Because of Christ, we are able, through the finished work of Christ on the cross, to face the all-glorious God no matter how little we know, no matter how much we need to change yet. The new covenant removes all veils that would diminish the display and the enjoyment of God's glory among us. Now, many of our people who will be sitting in our churches this coming Sunday, they're going to be sitting there thinking something like this. Okay, the preacher wants me to live for Christ. I'd love to. But I've failed so many times. And I'm tired of failing. My feelings for Christ fade away. I mean, right now I'm pumped. But tomorrow morning it's going to be gone. I can't keep this up. 
So I, I'll just settle for my usual mediocrity and I, you know, make the best of it. Well, I understand that thought. <laughs> Anybody else? Am I the only one? I don't think so. You know, we all start out, you know, we start well, eventually we reach some kind of impasse. Eventually we discover our defeatedness and the depth of our weakness and our need. But God knows our need before we ask. The new covenant is God's new ground rules for all of us. And we've entered into a new era through Christ, defined not by our defeat, but by God's power in the Holy Spirit, which He gives to every one of His blood-bought people. So, that's, that's what God has done now. And what's our part? What's our part in this ongoing miracle that God is performing? Next phrase. And we all, with unveiled face, here's the new phrase, beholding the glory of the Lord. Okay, now that's our part. That's what we come to church for, isn't it? Now sometimes it's so easy, the pressures are are there to for other agendas to sort of crowd into our worship gatherings, other things to focus on. But if anything in a worship service doesn't display Jesus, it has no place. Giving away CDs has a place in a worship service displaying the generosity and just sheer good-heartedness of our friend, Jesus. That was perfect. I, I made a mental note. we got to do that at Emmanuel Church. That is the open display of, you know, one of my favorite words, and maybe my favorite word in the English language is friend. You know, just walking into an environment of friendship, that's an experience. That, that, that communicates the gospel has taken over here. We live in an angry world, a fault-finding world, a world that puts you and me under negative scrutiny every day. We, we swim in this ocean of criticism, both stated and implied. We're, it is so much a part of our daily experience, we don't, we're not even aware of it anymore. But it beats us down and makes us feel small. And then we come into church. It's defined by our friend who loves us. And so we come into that environment sensing the glory of God in so many ways. And the glory of the Lord being the focal point. That's why. The overall tone of our services should be winsome and not angry, reverent and not glib, exalted and not cheap. And with His glory as the one and only focus, all we do is behold. That's our part. We behold and we keep on beholding and we never stop beholding. 
from the beginning of the service until the end, Sunday after Sunday, because we need multiple, multiple exposures to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we should design our services as, as constant redisplay of Jesus in his glory, every facet. And that's our part in God's miracle. Worship leaders have the unspeakable privilege of being involved in God's miracle. The display of Christ with transforming power. We all know this wonderful experience. Wouldn't it be great if we just had time to tell stories about how God has come down in glory and met us in our churches at different times along the way? Um, The glory of the Lord stands forth and we all sense it. Everything else recedes. And those are the great moments of life, aren't they? I, recently, a few weeks ago, I, uh, in God's mercy and grace, I, I thought this won't work, but it worked. I, I, was, I wanted to, to do the whole Gospel of John in one sermon. Because we had the first... It's madness. And we did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And how do I do John? I mean, there's so much to John. It's massive. So I, I'll do the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine and so forth. And, and as I thought about it on Monday, just sort of reflecting on Sunday morning, I, I noticed I was so in a zone when I was preaching. But I, as, as I thought about it in hindsight, everybody was so quiet and sort of subdued and yet intense at the same time because the glory was there I was feeling it we were beholding something from far beyond Nashville and our beholding week by week that is not what works the miracle it's the glory that works the miracle But the beholding just stays focused on him week by week. Now, when Paul talks about beholding the glory of the Lord, he's talking about the practical, weekly, regular ministry of the gospel in your church. In music, in preaching, maybe or maybe not in liturgy in the sacraments, in everything we do. And, and he's drawing another contrast. He's contrasting a Christian service with a synagogue service. Verse 14. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So they too read Moses and the prophets. They too read intelligently and sincerely. What do their eyes perceive on the page of the Bible? They see the righteousness they must fulfill. They do not see the justification Christ gives. But what they see, as Paul points out here, is really glorious. There is a glory in righteous demandingness that is defined by the moral categories of God. Sinai has power. It has glory. And you can build not only a synagogue, you can build a church with that glory. There are people who will respond to a staunch, harsh, legalistic ministry because they see something there and they are not hallucinating. They are seeing real glory and it's glory from God. 
But it's the old covenant. And it can't change them. Not down deep. And all the energy created by our anxieties over what we must fulfill and what we must do, all the energy of proving by our obedience, our superiority over morally unserious people, those people over there and so forth, that old way is now far surpassed. The new covenant is the greater glory of the perfect obedience Jesus fulfilled and the guilty death Jesus suffered and the positive energy of the freely outpoured Holy Spirit. So in our gospel-defined services, wherever we are in the Bible, we're beholding Jesus in his all-sufficiency for sinners. And as we pay close attention to that gospel, we find ourselves, we find ourselves as it were staring at perfect Jesus, loving, pathetic us. And that has an impact. And the Lord himself is in that experience. He's bringing his glory down. We feel at that very moment, we feel the weight of who he is as we submit ourselves to the ministry of the gospel in our churches We allow week by week our own works righteousness. We revert to it on a good day. It only takes me about 30 seconds to go back to works righteousness on a good day. So week by week, for me, worship at Emmanuel is, is, oh my goodness, it's the best hour of the week. I so need to go to church. And I'm the preacher. And I go to church and my works righteousness every week gets deconstructed all over again and it gets replaced by the grace of Jesus for me again again Sunday after Sunday. And that greater glory from Jesus is the only power in the universe that can change us. So thrilling. All right, next next part of the verse. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, our being transformed, that present tense matters, and then you see the gradual, from one degree of glory to another. That matters the same way. Oh, wouldn't it be great to be perfect right now? I mean, enough is enough. Anybody really enjoying sin? Well, you know, it would be so great just to be done with it for keeps. But you know, that isn't God's way. Uh, You and I are not easily saved. Sin has gone deep and we need constant immersion in the gospel. We need that over time. And here's the wonderful thing. God is patient. God is patient with you. I know He's patient with me. And the amazing thing is not how slowly we change, but that we change at all. (laughs) And what a change it is. I mean, this verb translated, we are being transformed, is the same verb used in the Matthew and Mark accounts of our Lord's transfiguration. Something happened to Jesus that was not earthly. It was heavenly. And even so, when people walk out of our churches this Sunday, as Jesus meets them, and they see him with the eyes of the heart, And he deals with them lovingly, authoritatively, helpfully, as a friend. 
And as Jesus changes them according to the terms of the new covenant in that power, they're going to walk out. Now, various people at different levels of of, of capacity to articulate it, they're going to walk out with some kind of awareness. Whoa. Something happened to me today. It wasn't just engaging music and it wasn't just compelling preaching. It wasn't just that my opinions have sort of been rearranged at the surface of my mind. Something deeper happened to me today. The Lord met me in my heart. His glory is changing how I see everything, how I value everything, what I, what I cherish and what I want to live for. There's another contrast with Moses here. It's that it isn't just our faces that glow for a while. It isn't even a state of mind that comes and goes. It's our innermost beings, the very roots of our personalities, receiving through the ministry of the gospel the lasting impress of the face of Jesus. It's the early stirrings of the new heavens and the new earth. It is an eschatological power within us. It's the future appearing in us even now. And that is the miracle. God is accomplishing in your worship gathering every week. That's what you're involved in. That's what I'm involved in. (laughs) How did we get here? What a privilege. Here's how big it is. Jonathan Edwards in his thoughts on the revival. I am bold to say that the work of God in the conversion of one soul, considered together with the source, foundation, and purchase of it, and also the benefit and an eternal outcome of it, the work of God in the conversion of one soul, is a more glorious work of God than the creation of the whole material universe. It is the most glorious of God's works, as it above all others manifests the glory of God. Well, no wonder Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? But through our, God hides himself in our ordinariness. How kind of him, how humble of him. Through our feeble efforts, Jesus is displayed. And people are transformed. And they are made ready for eternity. I think of it this way. The day is soon coming when we're all going to be standing before the Lord in heaven. And one of the angels looking on is going to nudge his buddy next to him and say... Michael, you see that Bob Coughlin? He so looks like the king. Paul says, transformed into the same image. That is the work God is accomplishing through you at your church.
Last phrase. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, why did Paul add that? Well, to make it unmistakably clear that the ministry of the gospel in the new covenant is not of us, but of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we minister by miracle. We change by miracle. And it comes not from us, but from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, just quick sidebar. There are many wonderful, you know, the one another's of the New Testament, love one another, comfort one another, and so forth. I, is there anywhere in the New Testament, is there a, a sanctify one another? I can't think of it. You know, we help each other a lot, but a Christian who acts as if he is another Christian's sanctifier is putting himself in the place of God. And when I've been on the receiving end of that, as doubtless you have, you know, it's kind of oppressive. Real change comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, and from Him alone. And therefore, we just want to give each other room to grow, you know? Just cut each other slack and... Realize, you know, God's working a miracle in you. God's working a miracle in me. I'm a complete. Here's the Emmanuel mantra. Here it is, real simple. The Emmanuel mantra. One, I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anybody can get in on this. Let's all say it together. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Say it again. Okay. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. And three, anybody can get in on this. All together. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anybody can get in on this. Well, there you go. So we give each other a lot of room to grow. I need room to grow. So do you. Let's just comfort each other. Lift each other up. Now the Lord works His miracles on His own conditions. Just before I come to this conclusion, I want to press forward a little bit for a few minutes. Let me just say this. The Lord defines how this works. And if we want the Lord in our churches to take the work up in his own hands, it's got to be on his terms. And I see three terms embedded, three conditions embedded here in the passage. One, are we turning to the Lord or are we just coming to church? Two, Are we removing every veil between our hearts and His glory? Or are we hiding behind something, even something glorious, but less glorious than Jesus Himself? Three. Is He being displayed as glorious? Or are we? Okay, now, that's the verse. I love that verse. Don't you love that verse? Isn't that one of your favorite verses in the whole Bible? All right, here's my conclusion. What is the weekly ministry of the gospel in the local church? The ministry of the gospel in your church is a supernatural event. It is not just information with application. That is merely human. 
The deeper reality is, according to Scripture, the ministry of the gospel in your church comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What's happening through your ministry is this. The risen Christ is drawing near, personally, directly, lovingly, authoritative, speaking to your people of His glory. And that ministry comes through you. But it is not of you. It is of the Lord. It's a supernatural event. The Bible teaches that just as our bodies have senses, so our souls too have senses. And the ministry of the gospel is God, through the Holy Spirit, engaging us with the senses of the soul. We've seen in this verse that our souls are enabled by the Holy Spirit to behold the glory of the Lord. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul actually speaks of the eyes of the heart. Peter, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, describes the experience of being born again as tasting that the Lord is good. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 of the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The senses of the soul. Now, how does that actually happen? His sheep hear his voice. Paul explains, I believe, in Romans chapter 10 and the translation in the margin of the ESV is more accurate. It reads in the margin, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And listen carefully. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, some translations say, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? As if People under the gospel merely hear of Jesus, about Jesus, but that translation is grammatically incorrect. The verb akuo, construed with an adjective in the genitive case, means to hear someone, not to hear of someone. Again, at the transfiguration passage, the father said, this is my beloved son, hear him. And it's the same Greek grammar. It cannot mean hear of him. It must mean hear him because Jesus is directly and immediately present there. Even so, when Paul describes the conditions under which people become converted, he explains it as people hearing the Lord himself through the human ministers of the gospel. Our souls have senses, beholding, sensing, hearing. Erasmus wrote in the preface to his Greek New Testament, On these pages you will find the living Christ, and you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before your very eyes. Our spiritual forefathers, I find this popping up, this language. They spoke of um, having views of Christ in church and in their devotions. Views of Christ. That's the language they used. A friend of Samuel Rutherford's explained why she went to hear him preach. She wrote, Though other ministers show me the majesty of God and the plague of my own heart, Mr. Samuel does both these things, but he also shows me, as no other minister ever does, the loveliness of Christ. So she, this precious lady didn't describe her worship experience merely in terms of learning about Christ. 
She spoke of being shown Christ. Edward Dorr Griffin, the first pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, in a sermon entitled, Faith Necessary for Sanctification, said, It is the views of Christ which faith brings that are transforming. Going to Christ is nothing more nor less than having these views. It will certainly obtain new strength from Him, as the seeing of the glory of the Lord will change us into the same image from glory to glory, as certainly as looking at the brazen serpent brought health to the dying Hebrew. This deep, rich, supernatural understanding of gospel ministry, this spiritual way of gospel ministry, this is classical Christianity. We are part of a revival tradition from the Reformation to the Puritans, the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, the ministry of Spurgeon, and so forth. We're part of, this is our heritage, theologically and historically. And we need to recover our roots. We own this. Let's claim it. Rejoice in it. Here's a Reformation document, the Second Helvetic Confession, 1566. Here's what it said. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, they they were not saying that a preacher is infallible. But here's what they were saying. If we can see in our Bible, lying open in our laps, that what the preacher is saying really is in the Bible, we're hearing God speaking. John Calvin both allowed for human frailty and asserted divine authority when he wrote, Paul does not want a man to make a parade of himself so that everyone applauds him and says, Oh, what fine preaching. Oh, his great knowledge. Oh, what a subtle mind. When a man enters the pulpit, is that is it that he may be preeminent? Not at all. He preaches so that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. The Lord, in His great kindness, He understands what would really help us. So if you're in a church and all the guys love NASCAR, you too love NASCAR because if Jesus were physically present in your church, He'd love NASCAR. For their sake. It's the only reason I can imagine. Deer hunting, that's different. I know the Lord loves deer hunting. We all have our own little quirks, don't we? You know, realizing how God is involved in what we're doing week by week, however modest our ministries may be in an, from an earthly point of view, it changes how we perceive what we're doing It adds grandeur and solemnity to our worship gatherings. It forces us to earnest prayer and deep dependence. It magnifies our sense of privilege that we are involved in what only God can do. And our people need to know that we sense that. It will help them. For example, the Scottish preacher Alexander Moody Stewart recalled this. This is a good rebuke for him. I receive it to myself as well. When a student under Dr. Chalmers, an elder said to me, 
you ministers should have more of the infinite in your sermons. And then Moody Stewart said, showing me, this man showing me two family portraits by eminent painters, he said, that painting is by an artist. This painting is by a genius. In the one, you have the whole before you with nothing beyond. In the other, the lines run off into infinity. You will never, the elder said to this young pastor, you will never reach the people by teaching us as if you knew it all and giving us our lesson as if we were children. If you wish to move us, you must make us feel that you see more than you are able to express and that you think and know that there is an infinite height and depth beyond what you see. But you go to the brim of the great ocean, you dip your little cup into it, you set it down before us, and you tell us, that's the ocean? May God deliver us from trivializing His ministry of His gospel. When we gather before the triune God, if it's gospel-intensive moment by moment as it should be and as we all desire it to be, Lord, help us, then nothing in the service is merely horizontal. A gospel worship service is a sequence of intentional inloadings of the gospel. More gospel, more gospel. Every moment being worship, beholding Him, listening for Him, sensing Him, attending to His glory so that we're reshaped under the impact. We don't merely apply the truth Monday through Friday at work and so forth as our process of change, the Bible says we're transformed right then and there. We walk out of church new people. And maybe our people need to stop taking notes during the sermon if that gets in the way. And there might be benefit from some gentle coaching in a totally socially unacceptable way. Here's another one another that I can't find in the New Testament. Embarrass one another. So a little gentle coaching in a socially acceptable, non-embarrassing way. Just forget the NFL game. Forget where you're going to lunch after church. Enter wholeheartedly into the one hour of the week when you are before Jesus with His people. And so we may need to sort of suspend temporarily our connectivity on the horizontal plane if that diminishes our connectivity on the vertical plane. Because Jesus comes first. If what we go to church for is just to be with one another, one another is all we'll get. And it's not enough. Christian community is awesome. But community cannot satisfy the depths of our beings. Only Christ can. And if we are connecting really well with one another, but not really well with Christ, community itself becomes unsustainable. And we will not only not grow from glory to glory, but we will eventually explode in anger at one another. We will end up destroying the very community we have foolishly, Worshipped, Isaiah says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. Empty hearts are angry hearts. But Christ-filled hearts 
our glorious hearts more and more so like Christ. James Stewart in his book, Heralds of God, put it bluntly. Your task is not to send people away from church saying, Oh, that was a lovely sermon or what an eloquent appeal. The one question is, did they or did they not meet God today? When William Burns preached in Perth, I think around 1840, one of the men who was converted, kind of a tough guy in town, his comment afterward was, it is surely something altogether unearthly that has come to our town. That's the testimony of someone hearing the voice of the king, even through a mere man. Your ministry of the gospel in your church is a message and a power from the borders of a higher world. That's what God has drawn you into. What a privilege. Well, let's just give ourselves wholeheartedly to the glory of Jesus. Let me pray. Our dear Lord, we don't deserve what you have given, but we receive it and we thank you for it and we cherish it. Make us fit, we pray, as ministers of the new covenant. In your holy name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Ray Ortland Jr., which was given at our Worship God 2011 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.SovereignGraceMinistries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.